I miss the desert. I miss the sea. And I miss waking up every morning. Wondering what wonderful adventure the new day will bring to us. Those days have come and gone. Perhaps, perhaps not. I don't believe in magic. A few times in my life, I've seen things, things I can't explain, and I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. Welcome to episode 99 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And tonight we are going to be giving you our spoiler-filled analysis and review of the fifth and possibly final film in the saga of the adventures of Dr. Henry Jones Jr., Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So Steve, many years ago, you and I were going to appear on the Wrong Wheel podcast with James Hancock to discuss the four Indiana Jones films, but... If you remember, I'm sure you do, <laughs> do you had to abandon me at the 11th hour, leaving me to go it alone with James when I was just a, a podcasting novice. It wasn't just the 11th hour, I think it was 11 hours and 59 minutes. <laughs> it literally was, yeah. <laughs> now, if you had joined us that night, what would you have said is your overall opinion of the four Indiana Jones films that we discussed in that episode? Oh, the Indiana Jones films are a part of my childhood. Yeah, I'm a, a child of the 80s and those are my formative years and the first film I remember seeing was The Temple of Doom on television it was at Christmas and I remember it was edited because of certain scenes you couldn't have uh, somebody ripping out a heart or when everybody's sitting down eating the Christmas dinner but then so that's the first one I saw and then I saw um, Raiders of Lost Ark and I was so excited to see The Last Crusade because that was the first one I saw in the cinema and for months and months, it was the build-up. And don't ask me which is my favourite. I swing back before between uh, Raiders and uh, The Last Crusade, depending on my mood. And sometimes if I'm in a bit of a dark mood, I'll even say um, Temple of Doom. But yes, they are part of my movie DNA. Yeah, kind of the same with me as well. Not to the yeah. same extent that the original Star Wars trilogy is. Or even, I've got to say, the Back to the Future films, I actually probably put them a little bit higher than these. But that first film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and and again, I'm no, I'm no hater of Temple of Doom. I love Temple of Doom. Yeah. But The Last Crusade was the first one I saw in the cinema. Um, by that point, I'd already seen the other two. I couldn't tell you when. Pretty sure I saw Raiders first. Would have been on television or possibly VHS. I can remember specifically when I saw The Last Crusade. It was 1989, obviously. It was in the cinema. I can remember which cinema it was. I can remember who it was with. All three of those films are just films I absolutely love as is that trilogy as a whole. Um, I noticed then you quite diplomatically left out the fourth film, Steve. <laughs> well, the fourth film is not part of my childhood, is it? It's yeah. part of my adulthood. And 15 years ago, wasn't it? 2008. 15 years, is that all? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I was already in my 30s when I, that came out. So, 
obviously it was going to mean something different to me than the others. And I think also the fact that it's not as good a film as the other three. Although I do still like it. Yes, it's the fridge. Everybody goes on about the fridge. And the part that gets me is Shia LaBeouf swinging through the um, mm. jungle like monkeys. You know, little moments like that. I understand it doesn't quite raise to the you know the bar uh, of the previous films. I, I watched it last weekend in preparation for The Dial of Destiny. And I watched it with my son, who had never seen this one before. He'd only, um, he'd only seen the first three. And he loved kingdom of the crystal skull yeah and so you know he's 12 so he's a different age and uh, different expectation than we have uh, and he didn't have to live up to anything either whereas with uh, us both kingdom of the crystal skull and the dial of destiny have a lot to live up to yeah no if readers of lost ark is is like is like a perfect 10 for me and i think it is near enough a perfect film temple of doom is 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 less so but still a film that i really like the last crusade it's nearly there I, yeah. I I love the Last Crusade. It's just difficult to judge, though, isn't it? Because we're also looking back with nostalgia. Yeah, it, it is. But I also think, you know, legitimately, they are. Oh yes, yes. Great films, but then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Bear in mind that it is a Steven Spielberg film. It's a big step down, and there's some, you know, even from that opening shot with the um, Paramount Mountain, which in this one kind of morphs into a is it a prairie dog? Oh yeah, something like that. Whatever, yeah, and a computer generated, and immediately I'm thinking. What the hell? And then there's there's loads of creative choices throughout the, that film which just baffle me. You know, some, like you say, that swinging through the jungle with a monkey scene is yeah. really bad. Yeah, but at the same time, it's got some really good moments in it. It has, yeah, it has, yeah. and and it's got some real charm as well. It it, it it's an Indiana Jones film. Yeah, I, I I'm going to come back specifically to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull later because a lot of people are saying that this new Indiana Jones film, The Dial of Destiny, how does it fare compared to the fourth film? And I can't help but make comparisons, you know, not with just that film, but with obviously the previous three. But I'm not one of the people that hates Crystal Skull, although I do acknowledge that it is not a good film. It's one of Spielberg's weakest films. It baffles me that it's a Spielberg film in, in certain parts, but there are certain scenes in that film which I actually think are pretty good. In fact, controversially, I actually like the nuclear bomb scene, with the exception of the ridiculous thing of, you know, he would literally just be you know, have every bone in his body broken. But I like the build-up to it, with him panicking and the, and the whole, you know, the sirens going off. Oh, that's excellent, that is, yes. That, that, that shot of the bomb elevated in that, like, sort of um, nuclear bomb cage, which, you know, as we've seen in the trailer for Oppenheimer, is how they used to test them, because they didn't detonate them at ground level. Also, that shot of him just standing, looking at the, the mushroom cloud, is just... It's quite awe-inspiring. It is, yes, yeah. There's other little things in it that I, I, I like, I don't hate the film, although it is several steps down from the others, and I would not argue with anyone who came at me saying, no, it's it's a bad film, because, you know, it's not a good film. Anyone that says, there's only three Indiana Jones films, I've said that several times myself, I know Neil has, and Richie has, and it's just one of those ones where, if we needed a fourth Indiana Jones film, I think we needed it in the mid-90s, set a few years after where we left him in, you know, 1938. Yes, yes, I agree, I agree. Uh, it was far too long in between them, and I would argue there's far too long between Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Dial of Destiny as well. Well, yeah, uh, let's, let's talk about that then, Steve, because what have your feelings been about this film from the point of announcement through the build-up and then this sort of really weird strategy they had of releasing it at the Cannes Film Festival over a month ago now, and it getting pretty bad reviews, and it, it just didn't seem to me like a very good release strategy. How were you feeling about the film uh, before you sat down last night to watch it? Yeah, I think it was 
excitement because after all it's still Indiana Jones but laced with trepidation because I I think that Disney thought they were on to a really good thing I think that's why they chose to release it in Cannes I thought that they I think that they thought that it was going to be a very very good film that people are going to love it they thought they were going to add a real hot film year that it was going to you know take the world by storm I really think they had a lot of confidence in it misplaced Maybe for a number of reasons, which, you know, but I I do think that, you know, the, the, it took a lot of confidence and chutzpah to release it in Cannes, a full, was it six weeks or two months, whatever, whatever it was, before the film was actually released. Because this is the, um, you know, the, the age of the internet where people just see something they, and it's so easy to attack something. We have so many embargoes until the last minute, so in, in order to try and get as big a opening weekend as possible. And yet they forgo all that and go for this strategy of trying to build up word of mouth see now there's a school of thought which i'm not going to go into in too much detail and i may refer back to later on in this episode or i might leave it later on till the end of this year when we do our rundown of the films of 2023 and we know by that point how this film has fared and if there's been any fallout in terms of well the theory is that the disney ceo has kind of released the film in can knowing potentially that it's going to be getting some flack in terms of the reviews and then you've got that kind of monthly or that month-long fallow period where following those negative reviews excitement for the film isn't exactly drummed up and it's almost as if the film is being set up to fail now to what end may become clear dependent on how this film fares but there is logic to this sort of theory put it this way i think should this film fail and someone in a very prominent position at lucasfilm I think is going to be made the scapegoat for it, but it's a very expensive way of getting rid. It of is a very expensive yeah. way of. But then look what um, Warner Brothers have done with um, with Bat- Cat, Batgirl yeah. and yeah. Uh, and also what people are talking about the Flash right now. Mm. You know, and Warner Brothers obviously do not know how to handle big budget no franchise movies not anymore no and you can argue that Disney are in the same position yeah, as well. Not just of, you know, Marvel's in a bad place at the moment. Yeah. Star Wars in a bad place at the moment. Yeah. By the time people are listening to this, we'll know whether Indiana Jones franchise is in a bad place as well. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, when I sat down to watch this film last night, you said you had a bit of trepidation, or a bit of excitement laced with trepidation. I had, <laughs> how could I put it diplomatically, almost a fear of dread. I'd listened to a few YouTube commentators who'd seen the film. I watched a few reviews, and we're talking mainstream reviews now, not independent reviews, mainstream reviews of the film, which were less than flattering. Diplomatic, but less than flattering. And given what I saw from the trailer as well, I think the only reason that I was watching this film is just so you and I could talk about it tonight. <laughs> so let's start with how the film opens, Steve, because I believe it is, is it Germany 1944? It is, yeah. I believe um, that's actually one of the, the names of um, one of the tracks on the John Williams soundtrack, which I think was dropped onto Spotify, uh, I think, yeah. yesterday. Well, it's certainly at a time when um, Hitler is... You said Hitler was in hiding, doesn't he? He's in hiding, yes, yeah. So that's to me, suggests it's either late 44 and 45. I'm not a historian, but it's when the tide is starting to turn. Obviously, we saw in the trailer this scene with, or this sequence, with a de-aged Harrison Ford. What do you think of this opening? Well, first of all, my first disappointment of the night came immediately because I know you said you didn't like the opening of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but at yeah. least it had the Paramount Mountain mm. and it fades into 
okay, this is just a little prairie dog hill or whatever yeah. you call it, but at least it's there, you know what I mean? Yeah. This time, nothing. And that was the first moment in this tight time. Well, it, it opened with the um, Disney 100th anniversary logo, didn't it? Well, the, and then it was the Lucasfilm tri- um, rectangle, and that changed into the rectangle of a um, a bolt, wasn't it? A, a lock. Yeah. That was the first disappointment because you've got to have the Paramount. Yeah, it had the Paramount logo, but it didn't transition into anything. It didn't did transition it? to no. anything. Which, you know, the other four indie films have done, haven't they? And quite cleverly. Yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, this is a Disney film. I know Paramount are obviously involved in it, but... But you just, you know, it doesn't hurt to stick to that tradition, does it? No, perhaps they just... they. I, I would imagine Disney are childish enough to say, oh, no, no, because that's too iconic. We want to change that because this is a Disney film. It does seem a bit sly and underhanded to do that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go on. Uh, uh, two seconds in, <laughs> yeah, you're already a bit disappointed. What do you think of this opening sequence with a, a de-aged Harrison Ford? Um, I, I didn't mind. I mean, de-aging is still not perfect, and there's still a bit of a bit of the uh, uncanny valley about it. I think you know, obviously, it's improved over the years. I'm a huge fan of the the Irishman, but I'd be the first to you know admit that there are moments in that where it's just not right. So there's an improvement, but it's still it's still there. One of the things after watching the trailer and seeing the scenes on the train, I was worried about was the use of CGI in general, because the other films, especially the first three, and it's partly because of the time they were made, but they used practical effects as much as they could, whether it was, um, and sometimes it was miniatures and things like that, but they were real. You could, there's a tangibility about them. CGI often doesn't have that. And I was worried about that, but I have to admit, I did get caught up in the scene and I found myself relaxing into it and the the moves uh, scene with the the um, gun shooting the nazis on the side of the plane on, on the on the side of the train sorry i i have to admit i laughed i thought it was a it was a quite a good scene not a lot of humor in this film but i did find myself you know slowly relaxing into it and it wasn't as bad an opening as i feared when i saw it the problem with uh, especially on trains and cgi is that you don't get a ch- um, a sense of the speed that they are experiencing. You don't get a sense of the wind hitting them. And I think there's an element of that still in this. But I think that they do... I, I did I did enjoy the opening scene. It's not love, but I did enjoy it. I agree with you, Steve. I, I think that the, the CGI, this goes back to before the bit on the train when he's, he's on the, the, the bike with the sidecar. There's just a sense of physics that is missing there. And yes. You can, you can just tell it's not real. And there's, all, there's, there's a... An artificiality and, a, and, a, and a, a lack of realism to it all. The eye picks it out, and yeah, when it, you're not immersed, you kind of get pulled out of it. Exactly. Remember, go, this is going back a long time now. The first uh, Mission Impossible film, when they're on top of the train. Remember, there's that yeah, fight scene. Yeah, that is how you do it. You, you really get a sense that the the wind is is rushing through their clothes. That they could have difficulty standing up. But, um, you know, I mean, they they are fighting the elements as well as you know the the their opponents yeah you don't get that at the moment well they, you know there's, there's a train scene of the opening of the last crusade with so river phoenix playing a young exactly. indiana jones yeah yeah and that's a great scene it is yeah much slower in terms but of because the of the realism but, it, but it's real yeah, yes exactly and and then when you see the uh, obviously fake um, animals on it you know the yeah. rhino horn coming up you forgive that because it's still real yeah it's yeah it's, it's a it's a practical effect yes yeah yeah Early on in the film, one of the biggest problems of the film starts to rear his ugly head, and that's the, the overuse of computer-generated effects. Now, this film has been made on a reported budget of $300 million. The first film, I think, yeah, the budget's $294 million. The budget of the first film, and I, I, know, I know that was way back in 1981, 
But the budget of the first film was $18 million. Adjusting for inflation, that's still not going to come anywhere near $298 million. What has all that money gone on? Because exactly. throughout this film, none of the effects are particularly convincing. There are some pretty decent effects in it, but there's a huge overuse of, of, of CGI in this film. I just think we've come to a point now in the film industry where practical effects, just location shooting, uh, you know, to a large degree, has just become too much of a pain in the ass for a lot of filmmakers and, and studios to want to do. Yeah, and even when it is on location, it's often outdoors, but with a huge green screen surrounding them. It can be done effectively when you, you know, like that filming system, that you know, that wraparound thing they use in The Mandalorian. When used correctly, it's really convincing. But with this, and there's, there's several scenes later on where they kind of mask the CGI by having, you know, a, a bike chasing a plane at night and it's pouring down with rain. And as we know, effects like that can just hide bad CGI and bad compositing. And this opening scene, the thing that got me about it was it was the setting. It was a younger indie still, you know, within the throes of World War II fighting the Nazis. And that was the thing I wanted from Crystal Skull 15 years ago. It was that aspect of it, which is the bit that hooked me because I'm going to, I'll play my cards early on. I think this opening is the strongest part of the film. And I think okay. it's, in many ways, it, it's downhill from there. Although, I will say, seeing Harrison Ford not under layers of makeup or, or CG or, or a mixture of both or, or having a body double and then overlaying his face. So essentially, it's not even his performance. And there were a few moments where his voice actually showed that it was old Harrison Ford trying to voice a younger version of himself. Later on, when we see Indy just playing himself, albeit, you know, however old he's supposed to be in 1969, it was just nice to see him doing an actual performance as opposed to this artificial version, which didn't really convince me. He was kind of a bit dead behind the eyes on a few occasions, to say the least, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that's what I meant by the, you know, the uncanny valley. You, you, yeah. you can see that it's a human, but you don't believe it's a human. Yeah. There's something about it that is just not... It's got all the qualities. It's got the face. It's got the movement. It's got um, the muscle movement and everything like that. But there's something about it which just does not quite convince that it is a real person. I don't understand how we've yet to reach a position where they can do this more convincingly. Because if you look at the difference between how incredible Gollum was in The Two Towers, improved upon again by the time we got to Return of the King a year later, and then you jump forward then to the first Hobbit film in 2012... And they had absolutely perfected that character. Now, I know he's not real, but he is based on a real performance. He was absolutely faultless in that first Hobbit film. And I don't understand how they can't finesse that sort of technology. I think, ultimately, it comes down to a time constraint and budgetary issue. And I just don't think that ILM are the effects house that they once were. Well, I, I, all I can think of is it must be getting so expensive to do these special effects that... Or maybe did they just relying on them too much that they they just spread too thin? I was reading Bill Scurry's review, uh, very brief review today of um, the Flash. Now I haven't seen the Flash, but he talks about how bad the, the CGI in that film is, and I've heard that a number of times this year and last year of how bad the CGI is in these films. Mm. And yet, you would think that by now, the fact that we're using it so much as well, we've got to perfect it before we we rely on it so much. If you look at the amount of effects people from independent effects houses and some of them who've worked on behalf of the big ones have, have come forward to say that the amount of pressure that's being put on them by companies like Disney and by Lucasfilm to produce 100 effect shots in a certain amount of time. These effects houses then enter into a bidding war with their, with their competitors. Yeah. 
in order to say, right, we can do it in this time frame for this amount of money, they end up undercutting themselves and setting themselves unrealistic deadlines. So I think it's that culture which has sprung up, which has caused this. Because you go back to 2013, Guillermo del Toro is given a budget of 200 and whatever million it is by Warner Brothers to do Pacific Rim. He asks for additional time to do a 3D conversion on the film, which Warner Brothers grant him. He then brings the film in under budget with some of the most phenomenal effects I've ever seen. Yes. In terms of the, the physics of those giant kaiju and those robots and when they use rain in that film, it's not done in a way to mask the effect. It's done in a way to add to them. So when you see a giant fist coming through the rain, you're seeing it. It's displacing yes. the rain. It's about atmosphere. That's right. And it's about a sense of scale and realism. And I think because that's now 10 years ago and the, you know, the landscape of filmmaking has, has changed, unfortunately, due to a lot of things, I think special effects are starting to suffer. And I think Disney are one of the big perpetrators of this new culture of farming things out to you know, the little guys, the little people, and not giving them the time and the resources to do the work that they need to. And then they're ending up putting stuff on screen that is just substandard. And I know that 15 years ago, there are some bad effects in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And again, I've not rewatched it for a long time. But this film in 2023 should have looked a hell of a lot better than it did. And there's sequences later on, which make this opening bit look really good because some of the physics and also the ridiculous predicaments the characters are put in with. Like, in fact, looking talking about the, the, the 1944 sequence. Indy is being hung in the, the sort of um, bell tower of this building or you know, the, the sort of top floor of this tower. A bomb comes through the ceiling, lands on the floor, falls through the hole in the floor, through several more floors and then blows up. And then Indy and everyone else is sort of scattered to the four winds. And for some reason, Indiana Jones is now bomb-proof. Yeah, yeah. He's now immune to explosions. This whole ridiculous, almost cartoonish, like sort of wily e. coyote kind of um, invincibility that he's got—it never makes me think that the character is in peril at any point. No, I think you were um, using Pacific Rim is a is a fantastic example because what those creatures and the robots in that film had was heft. Yeah, and I think that's, that's right. what seems to be missing now. It's heft. It's um, yeah. You know, when a bomb goes off, it has impact. Do you yeah. remember that? I don't know if you have you ever seen um, oh, was, uh, Catherine Bigelow film that won the Oscar? The Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker, yes. When the mm. when there's an explosion there, you can feel it hitting. You know, it's the same. Look, look, going right back into the 90s, Terminator 2 with the um, Armageddon scene. Yeah. That has, that has heft. You really feel it hitting you. And that's, that's missing these days. That's right. Even though it was model work, it was still done with air cannons and explosives and in a, a lot of the time, real fire, real pyrotechnics. And, well, you know, when you replace all of that with computer graphics, it just it just doesn't sell. No, because it was still, you know, even though it was um, models and it was um, puppetry and it was and miniatures and stuff, hmm. when they hit by by a, a blast of air, they react. Yeah. Whereas now you're trying to mimic what that might be with CGI, and of course you can't really mimic that. You can't mim- mimic how it hits the face and how it contorts the body as it's throwing you back. You know. So in, in that early scene, we're introduced to Toby Jones's character, Basil Shows, kind of like this now, this new kind of sidekick that Indy's got, and also introduced to Dr. Voller, played by Mans Mickelson. Is it explained at any point, Steve, how Mickelson's character survives that being hit by that you know, railway sign when the, the train's travelling probably about 100 miles an hour? Because that would literally split his skull in two. 
I thought when I saw that moment, and is it a, a sign? Because um, afterwards in DC, when he says, oh, I thought your name rung a bell. And I thought that was a some kind yeah. of stupid joke because he actually hit the bell Maybe. or something. I don't yeah. know. But either, either way, it's something that, you know, yeah. if, if a human skull hit it at that speed, it would just get, you know, obliterated. Yeah, at the very least, he wouldn't look like he did. No, exactly. <laughs> and it, it again, it, it just adds to this whole sort of lack of believability in a cartoonish sort of air to things that... It's, it's just from the off, kind of pulling me out of the film. Yeah, it's it's a uh, a moment. It is. It's like when you hit mm. him really, really hard, so the audience can go, "Ooh!" Yeah. But that's it. Then it, I mean, it, they don't think about what's going to happen later. No. You know, it's, it's just for the moment. And it's like a lack of restraint, isn't it? If you know this character is going to survive, just show him falling off the train. Keep it ambiguous. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to be made to think late, later on. Well, oh, we're going to have some sort of explanation now as to how he is back from the dead because that would have killed anyone. We then jump forward 25 years, is it, to 1969. It's after the Apollo 11 moon landings, and there's a big kind of um, ticket tape parade in, I think, are we in New York? Yeah, New York, Yes, yes. and they're uh, celebrating the Apollo astronauts coming back home. Yeah, now, we are then met with a much older, crotchety Indiana Jones. And immediately, and again, I i got to say, I'm not happy with how much they played him as this sort of grumpy old man. He's, he's complaining to the youngsters, you know, in, in one of the adjoining apartments about all the noise they're making. And I'm thinking, oh, you're knocking him down. And we all know that he's going to be pulled back up and he's going to be asked to down to down that fedora and pick up the whip again. And I'm thinking, is this entirely necessary? I, I didn't mind that. I, I like the idea that it's the only time in the film they really try to add any character to Indy. And that's the you know his relationship with uh marion and mutt I, I didn't mind that at all you mean because what 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 was he going to be at the end of his um, career is he going to be living in a you know nice comfortable house with um you know not doing anything and just relaxing he was never that type of character and so they I, they do try and add some kind of depth and um trauma to him i think ultimately steve that is what the crux of my problem is with these last two films i don't want to see indiana jones at this age well i wanted if we were going to have two more indie films, I would like them to have been in the early to mid-90s, then the late 90s, and at that point, the story could have been put to bed with him in his prime. Yeah, but that's never going to happen as soon as Lucas' film was sold. To me, it kind of marks these films as too little, too late, redundant, unnecessary, and seeing him as an old man, it, it, it's just a bit sad, really. It just <laughs> makes me hark back to those first three films and makes me want to watch them. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, we find out that him and Marion are divorced. We then well, later find out that... Uh, legal separation, they're not actually divorced yet. Separated, so yeah. yeah. And then Matt, uh, his son that we met in the last film, who was played by Shia LaBeouf, he went off to Vietnam and was killed. Now, am I saying this too early? Should I really keep this for my sort of summation of the film at the end? They could have recast him. They could have brought him back. Or they could have written him off. In some other way, do they have to kill him? Um, I am got pro- I am got a problem with that because I think one of the the better scenes of the film was when they were on the boat later on, and they would he was discussing the fact that his son went off to die, and so many kids at that time were going off and dying in Vietnam, and would be for another um, was it five six years or whatever it is. Yeah. Um. So I don't think you know, I think that by having a young man at that time not go off to Vietnam wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the mutt that we met in the last film, he, he probably would have, wouldn't he? He would have, yes. And and to piss his father off, yeah. you know, which is yeah. what the story is in the film. I think that I think all that is fine. And I think it's there's a moment of poignancy to it. 
and it shows how good Harrison Ford can be as an actor, even if in a very, very brief scene. And it's safe because of his performance, I think, in the, in these moments. Yeah. And then Indy, he's always had a sidekick in a film, be it from the romantic angle in the first film with Karen Allen, with her character of Marion. In the third film, he's got, a, he's got his dad as a sidekick. And then perfectly we meet his sidekick in this film which is none other than the return of short round and everyone in the cinema you know they 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 applauded they gasped they were like yes they brought short round back and then i woke up and realized that no that was just a dream and <laughs> i was wondering where you're going then <laughs> the sidekick we've got in this film is a new character her name is helena it's the daughter of the character that we met early in the flashback of Toby Jones's character. It's Indy's goddaughter, and it's played by British actress Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So chuck my um, short round sort of fantasy out the window. This is what we'll have to deal with. What did you think of her and her character? Well, it took me a while to warm to her because there's, especially in the early scenes, you know, in the, the tuck-tuck shapes, she was getting on my nerves. She really was. She was just too brash. There was no depth to her whatsoever. She was just so confident in everything she was doing. It didn't matter what, whether she was um, trying to con people into buying something or if she was in a race starting down you know, little alleyways at 60 miles per hour. Nothing seemed to phase her. And I thought, well, this is just too one-dimensional. And there's moments when, it, during that scene, when they are arguing back and forth, and it's it's just not real. I have to say, she started off getting on my nerves straight away. By the end of the film, um, she had calmed down, and I, was, I did warm to her a little bit more. But I think that was more because she was less brash at the end than she was through the early scenes. Okay. I was absolutely dreading her character. I think American audiences, it, it, it struck me sometimes they must have just a, a love of kooky British characters. And, and we're talking about the nation that um, embraced James Corden. <laughs> says a lot. <laughs> now, I loved Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's British sitcom. I, I liked her in it. I thought it was it was very funny. I don't think that she had any place in this film. I'll keep going back to if they were going to put a sidekick back in, bring Kehi Kwan back as short round. We've seen recently that he is still a very capable actor. Yeah. That has been proven. Now, I know that would have been hindsight because obviously the accolades he got for everything everywhere all at once would have come after this film was put into production, but they never even entertained it because looking at a lot of the analysis of Lucasfilm that's been done by a lot of YouTube commentators of late, there is clear evidence of a, a behind-the-scenes agenda going on and certainly in relation to one person very high up in Lucasfilm, that's not meant to my words, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, it seems like a lot of the stuff that is being kind of forced into these films seems to be of a particular agenda of her liking, and this just smacks of that. i never seen Phoebe Waller-Bridge before, I have to admit. I didn't know. I knew she was in Fleabag, but I'd never seen it. Uh, so I was going in without that baggage. And and I will say that, you know, in each of the other films, there has been, but well, not every film, but the first, second film, there was a love interest. Mm -hmm. The third film, Last Crusade, they had a um, a love interest and they did play with that a little bit, you know, making her the bad guy. Look how multidimensional that was. Yes, yeah. No. The fact that they she ended up being a Nazi yeah. and he ended up kind of, you know, initially kind of falling for her. And it gave it kind of like an added dimension. So when things were turned on their head and, and she turned on him, it was like, shit. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I think what they're trying to do with this one is give give her the confidence and the brashness that 
is lacking in Indy because of his age and because of the baggage he's carrying at that time. Well, I was expecting from, from the off, Steve, to hate her character, to actively hate her character from what I'd seen in the trailers. Yeah. Now, the way she's introduced, there is sort of a bit of a history between the, the you know the pair of them and a bit of warmth. It wasn't like a sort of just wall of bang, here I am, I'm awesome, this is me, I'm great, I can do everything. Didn't get that straight away, but unfortunately we were kind of steadily drip fed that and it got to the point where by the time we get to is it morocco morocco yes yeah morocco and and the tucked up chase by that point she's really starting to great dummy i don't like her at all for someone who's in the sort of same business as Indy, she just seems hell-bent on selling these artifacts and then you know there's no sort of gray area with her there's no sort of moral quandary of ah should i really be doing this this kind of just like this drive to no, I want to sell this because all that matters to me is money. Yeah, it was taking me back to Temple of Doom, you know, fortune and yeah. glory. There were also some really uncomfortable moments of her just kind of ogling men. Yes. Which I was like, well, there were at least three scenes, I think. There was the, the, the guy on the boat, the diver. There were, I think, two others as well, where she was just kind of making eyes towards men, like sort of lustfully, and nothing ever came of it. I thought, well, what are they doing? What, what are they trying to build up in her that, that requires that? And it just seemed really bizarre. Yeah, she's. I think they're trying to create an alpha female as a sidekick, and that doesn't work because she's still got to be a sidekick. You know, but this is this is an Indiana Jones film. Yeah, but she's also got to be likable. Yeah, she has. Yes. No, I, I know Kate Capshaw's character annoyed the hell other people. I know. You know, she was this sort of. You know, she wasn't a particularly strong female. You know, sort of archetype because she was literally just this useless damsel in distress. Whereas Carol Allen's character, Marion, was the complete opposite. Yeah, but that's why Kate Capture was who she, who she was because of Karen Aaron in the you know the previous film. Yeah, but th- but they also knew what to do with Kate Capture because that you know the fantastic scene in Temple of Doom when he's in his bedroom and she's in her room and you know there's always it's like it's like a screwball comedy, isn't them. it? And yes, exactly. They knew what to do. Whereas yeah. with this Helena, it's almost like you know Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant sort of era screwball comedies. Yes, and they were having fun with it. Yeah, they were. And as much as she is annoying, I think by the time I warmed to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, it was literally by the very end when she's actually showing that she gives a shit about Indy. She doesn't yes. want to leave him back in the past. But there's still this sort of, you know, you're not giving her much of a story arc. You're not giving her any sort of development as a character. And I think that really does her character a disservice because she's got nowhere to go. She is what she is. She doesn't really change throughout the film. If you're going to do that with a character, then... You know, it just shows a lack of imagination and, and a bit of poor writing. We've already established that to some degree she cares for Indy, but then that kind of, you know, she flits back and forth with that. And I, I just think her character is, I think she's just one of the weak points in the film. And even she, the sidekick, has got her own sidekick. Yeah. That um, the Moroccan boy, Teddy. He's no short round. He's not, but I think he's a stronger character, more interesting than than she is for a lot of it the damning words indeed <laughs> yeah Steve. yeah <laughs> you know they really are but no because he's got hopes and dreams isn't he you know i mean the, the whole thing about him um, wanting to fly and everything like that that's a nice little character quirk it's, it's not much they don't explore it very often but i think it's just yeah. one scene and then he can he's able to fly you know but um but at least they're trying something with that character with her she's just you know mads mickelson he was absolutely phenomenal as Le Chiffre in Casino Royale. Most recently in 2020 in another round, the Danish film. He is a fucking brilliant actor. And it doesn't matter what he's in, I don't think I can I don't think I can ever dislike him. 
I thought he was great in, you know, even in Rogue One, I thought he was great. But sometimes he does seem to turn up and just sort of dial in his performance and it's just like, I'm going to do the sort of softly spoken but still underlying menace that I inject into my character's Mads Mikkelsen type performance. And I think that's what he does here. And I think this is probably one of the best examples of a dialed in Mads Mikkelsen performance. Although I still like the guy because he's still quite a commanding on-screen presence. Although I think I've got to say this is one of his less memorable performances yeah i don't confuse me on the one hand he didn't seem personally from my point of view he didn't seem to have a great deal of menace although he did some horrible things and i was wondering why he commanded such undying devotion from his uh, followers from his henchmen yeah from uh, boyd holbrook's character yeah, yeah yeah and um oliver richter's the huge guy oh he was massive my God, he's huge, he's massive. he was yeah yeah but I, I i couldn't quite work out why he uh commanded such devotion because he didn't yeah. seem to do anything and there was yeah. there was no background to him he, was, he just started apparently he helped get the um rocket into space yeah how we don't know yeah and was it just him because we know that you know in real life it was huge group of people who were involved yeah but in this film it seems to be just him he's about to see the president but he doesn't really care about the president blah blah but we don't find any background as to why they devote they entirely devote everything to him and in following him yeah now steve you and me both saw this film last night but we've said next to nothing to each other about it. But one of the things you did learn on is the fact that, that the plot is kind of all over the place. And I also think, didn't your daughter find it quite confusing? What I was thinking is this, right? If you have a look at the other films, Reader's Last Arc is a perfect example, right? This plot is explained from the very beginning, you know, in the hall, on the stage, with the table, when they're looking at the map, yeah. they explain everything. In Temple of Doom, they have the, the, you know, that famous meal, um, chilled monkey brains and all that. Mm-hmm. And everything is explained. You know, and yeah. it's the same with Last Crusade and, to a certain extent, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In this yeah. one, it's just a little bit, it's drip-fed, and sometimes because it's so much action, so much noise, so much happening, it's so easy to get lost. And I think the middle section is muddled. Well, I, I think the plot's all over the place. And like you say, though, the, the, the plots to the other four films are very straightforward and at no point am I left scrambling to, to keep up with them I, I'm, you know, I'm left scrambling for breath in the first one because it literally moves along at such a cracking pace but the plot is never something I'm struggling with whereas with this I'm like well Archimedes you've got this device he's split into two pieces but then at that point where they meet up with Antonio Banderas's character the diver I'm like well are they looking for the second piece now and as it turns out they're not actually they're looking for a different piece altogether which actually tells them the whereabouts of the second piece and I'm like whoa whoa yeah yeah I thought they were looking for the second piece at that point yeah this is a fucking yeah. mess this story is just all over the place uh, you know and Steve I've got to say it the runtime for this film two hours 34 minutes this is way too long way too long yeah no I, I agree that, that first film right Raiders of the Lost Ark is one hour and 55 minutes Mm. and it doesn't let up at all even Temple of Doom again I think that's yeah that's one hour 58 and I think the longest of the three actually is Last Crusade that's two hours and seven minutes but again at no point am I ever looking at my watch whereas last night I was sat there and I looked at my watch four or five times at least I shouldn't be doing an Indiana Jones film no no I, I thought it dragged on way too much. And I thought, one, again, one of the other things you said to me is you, you said it moved along at a cracking pace. And it may well have, but for me, I, when I'm not engaged, and no final example, the, the Tuck Tuck chase, which reminded me a hell of a lot of that um, chase in Jurassic World Dominion uh, with the raptors running through the streets. Yeah. 
it just reminded me of that with lo- loads of physics defined stuff and the characters just never seem in any peril because you just know that nothing's going to happen to them because you've already seen them sort of in these surviving explosions and the thing about that scene that got me though was that they were shooting down alleyways they were you know they yeah. were pointing you know turn left and he would turn right by mistake and all this and yet every time they turned around the corner the bad guys bad Mickelson yeah. was right in front of them every time it didn't matter which way direction they went they were still really really close to them and i thought this is defying logic. You know, a, a good action director or a good director director of action scenes will always map things out. You always get a good sense of geography when it's yes, done properly. Yes, and this one didn't. You know, for all the thrills, and there were some great moments in it when he was jumping from one tuck tuck to the next and things like that. They were great. They, yeah, I, I don't I don't mind them at all. I, that's within keeping with the film and keeping with the characters. But they, he would do that, and it would be like two or three minutes, all in one scene, and they'd be going in the wrong direction, turn around the corner, and there was Dr. Voller right in front of them again. Yeah. That's, that doesn't work. The, the diving scene, I thought, wasn't bad. Oh, no, no, that was good. Because yeah. when, when, they, when they put the suits on and they were going to go in the water, I thought, how bad is this going to look? Because we've already seen some really bad, unconvincing CGI. What is this going to be like? I actually thought that was one of the most, in terms of effects-wise and, and me being immersed in what I'm seeing, was one of the better scenes. Although, by that point, I, I'm thinking, this story really needs to progress now. And giving me action scene after action scene, and it's just not gripping me, because I've already had too much. I, I haven't had enough meat and bones plot. I think the best example I can give you is, Steve, I was thinking earlier of, what are the great moments in this film? And one of the comparisons that instantly came into my mind was, if you think back to, and this isn't an action scene, this is just... A perfect bit of of writing and editing is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right, when, when Julian Glover's character and Elsa Schneider, they've got Indy and his dad held captive. And they try to find out the missing pages from, from the journal. And Elsa works out that Indy has given them to Marcus Brody. It's perfectly obvious where the pages are. He's given them to Marcus Brody. Marcus? You didn't drag poor Marcus along, did you? He's not up to the challenge. He sticks out like a sore thumb. We'll find him. The hell you will. He's got a two-day head start on you, which is more than he needs. Brody's got friends in every town and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. Uh, does anyone here speak English? Or even ancient Greek? Uh, water, no, thank you, sir. No, fish make love in it. That scene is just one of the greatest cuts in, in, in any of these films, in, in you could argue in any Spielberg film, is that bit where Indy is building up how great Marcus is, you know, he, he's got friends <laughs> in every city from here to the Sudan, he speaks like, you know, 12 different languages, blah de blah, you know, but, you know, with any luck he's already got the grill now and then, he, you know, we cut to him He's just, he hasn't got a clue. He's hes just, hi, oh, can yeah. you help me, whatever. Yeah. And it's only then by luck. Yeah, the John Reese davis character of Salah finds him. And it's just, there's nothing in this film that's as clever as that little scene in The Last Crusade. No, I, I think, you know, go back to the water scene, I think that, as I've said already, there's not a lot of humour in this film, which is surprising because it is in, especially in Last Crusade, for example, I think it's probably the most humorous of the lot. But this one, there's very, very little humour. And mm. this, this, the water scene um, does allow us one moment when somebody says, 
about the eels or they just look like snakes and you know that he's you know and i thought that was a nice yeah. little moment and the whole scene underneath with the tangling of the water that's something we can relate to that's that's fine but one thing that the film because the the film is unrelenting in its pace sometimes and i think that's a, um, a problem with it because if you little moments every so often if you think back of, uh, to last crusade with the, there's a recurring joke there's a recurring line ah venice remember that yeah you could not yeah. there's no time for even that one you know two words in this yeah. film to recur and beca- uh, and for you know the audience to laugh it doesn't happen at all it's just so relentless hitting you in the face with one action scene after another after another after another and sometimes we and some of the great scenes that we all remember in Indiana Jones films are those little moments in between yeah that's right this yeah okay. it, it's the gaps in between the action which are so important to sort of on, on the, the boat pace. in Raiders the Last Ark for example Something which will come up towards the end. Yeah. You know, there's a little scene with Marion and Indy. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, even the lunch scene, the dinner scene in Temple of Doom, some people might say it goes on a bit long, but it, it calms everything down. We've had a huge, fantastic opening scene. And it's memorable. Everything is calmed down. And it's memorable. And then we've got the big interaction scene at the end. Yeah. You know, and it's all the way through the other films. We've got that. And I don't think it's, it's it, well, I think it's missing. Yeah. Drastically missing in this film. I agree. Yeah. We've got that bit then where you know we're in another sort of cave ruin system, you know, which we've seen countless times before, and they eventually then find the, the kind of the tomb of Archimedes, and you know they get the other piece of, of the device. I, I can't remember the name of it. The Antikythera, yeah, something like that. And at that point, then, <laughs> and and again, you know. We've already said that, that this is going to be spoiler-filled, and if you've come to this point, then you either don't care about the film or you've already seen it or you've got no intention of seeing it. But at that point then, and I I couldn't help but think back to the people who sort of cried in anguish when it was revealed that that crystal skull powered an alien ship and then this like sort of Mayan temple or whatever it was sort of powers up and this UFO takes off and flies away. And there were people saying, what the hell is going on? This is an Indiana Jones film. And I'm like, well, this is an Indiana Jones film set in the 50s. You know, it's all about Area 51 and that sort of era. Why wouldn't you think that this could be a thing? Well, from the very first scene, it says 51 on the... um... Oh, we've, you know, we've already. Place they go to. It was all about Cold War paranoia and that sort of thing. So that, for me, that always fitted in with the setting. And I'm not being funny. You know, we've seen the opening of the Ark of the Covenant with you know, souls coming out of the Ark and and you know melting Nazis' heads and making them explode. We then see a guy pulling someone's heart out. Yet he's somehow still alive and and, and able to be sacrificed. You know, we've seen that you know the cup of Christ make a guy you know disintegrate before Indy's eyes. So. Is there anything that remarkable then about seeing, you know, an alien spaceship? Bearing in mind I'm saying that, when it got to the point where, yeah, they're actually going to be going back in time to 200 and something BC, I'm thinking, I just wish they'd come up with any other number of plot devices. Keep it simple. Let's just focus on that spear, which Pierce Christ, when he was on the cross, that could have been the focus of it. Why have you got to make this so convoluted and complicated? He hunts for archaeological artefacts of, of note. And there's, you, know, you could argue there's none more so than you know the spear that the Roman soldiers used to stick in Christ when he was on the cross. It would have avoided all of this nonsense. Yes, you would have you know you had that kind of nice moment where Indy's in the past, he's been shot. He's saying to Helena, This is why I've searched for all my life, leave me here. But then even that moment was spoiled for me because she then knocks him out. So you're telling me that yeah she can knock him out, yeah. Pat Roach <laughs> when he's fighting him under that 
aeroplane in the first film punched the shit out of Indy, yet he never lost consciousness. One punch from here. I know he's a lot older, but still, I'm like... Well, first of all, going back to the time travel sequence. Well, before we get to that, this whole idea of the dial. Now, I understand that the dial is, in real life, one of the great finds in archaeological history. It is a real thing, um, and it is one of the greatest finds because it was made about 200 years before Christ, and it has gears and dials and all the things you would find in a watch which wasn't going to be invented for 1,500 years. So it is a real thing. So I can understand why they went for that. The problem is that, I mean, I can't, right now, I can't remember exactly what it's called because it's not in the public consciousness as such. You you have to look it up. It's it's not like, you know, the spear that um, was used to um, stab Christ because we all know that story. But this one about Archimedes' dial, it's, it's not something that everybody knows. There's a lot of things out there, a lot of archaeological discoveries, which we will re- we'd all remember because we've all, it's part of our the, the world we live in. Yeah. But this is very significant for archaeologists, but for the rest of us, we probably never heard of it before. It had to overcome that, and it doesn't quite. No, you're right. It, just, it doesn't. I don't think it does. Yeah. Even I think you you were going back earlier to saying that the, you know the plot is overly complicated, whereas the other films were were fairly simple. And you've got the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone knows that. You know the Ark that held the the, the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from was it Mount Sinai? Uh, Sinai. Mount, Mount Sinai. Then you've got the, the Holy Grail, the cup of Christ that he drank from at the, the Last Supper, that legend says will grant. The person who drinks from it, everlasting life. These are things that are, are popular in the, the Bible. They're important historical artifacts, even if you know they, they'll, they'll never be found or whatever. And I just think if they focused on something well known, keeps in line then with those other two films. I, I just think that would have serviced the plot a, a lot more. But then I think by by putting this convoluted plot in, I think it's covering up for the fact that the bare bones of the story and and the script in, in particular as well is just lacking everywhere else. Yeah, and also the what they the way they used to describe it, like um, was it a uh, fissure in time? Nobody in the film, and this is something that a lot of people will not know what that is. You know, genre fans will know what that is, but a lot of the public paying to see this film might not know what that is. So all they have to do is have one character say, "What does that supposed to mean?" You know, time travel. That's it, just to simplify it. But then also at the end, just before they go into the rift, you have this big conversation about continental drift, which I've got no idea what that got to do with it whatsoever. Because in the end, they end up in Sicily anyway. They go through the rift and they end up in exactly the same place where they were anyway. So that's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. Yeah, I think that was maybe Indy trying to bluff Mickelson's character, wasn't it? Well, maybe, maybe yes, yeah. But that again, that wasn't clear. But when they did go back in time, it was because I knew that was coming and. I was dreading it, but I think that it was done quite well and it was done keeping with the character. And, you know, the fact that he finally was there in the past, the thing that he exalts more than anything else, this history, and he had a chance to actually experience it. And he was willing to give his life because, you know, he'd been shot at that moment. And he was willing to give his life to be there. And she realized, you know, the folly in um, what he wanted. And she was trying to convince him not. Yes, the, the way that she ended up convincing him by, you know, punching him out. That's mm. a bit stupid. You know, it's, again, it's one of those, you know, just like Mads Mikkelsen being hit by the bell or the sign at the beginning. It was a moment that wouldn't it be cool if this happened rather than thinking about the logic behind it. You know, I'm not going to argue with you there, Steve, what you said about that, you know, the, the scene when they go back in time and it is reasonably well done. But my Surprisingly. Whole, yeah, my whole argument is that I never want to be brought to this point because I think the, the, the plot in general and the story they've chosen to tell, I just think it just isn't a particularly interesting one. And it's it's just padded out with so much endless generic 
overly CGI action. But by the time I got to the end, I'm just thinking, crikey, you know, for all the flack the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull got, I could still tick off several scenes and, and moments which would cause me to go back and watch that film. I probably watched that film, counting the time I saw it in the cinema, I've probably watched it at least three times. And it's probably best I don't even save this for the end now. I don't want to watch this film again. I'm going to have no desire to watch this film again. And I'm probably saying that before I even mention one of the, the nicer moments in the film. At the end, when he wakes up in New York yes. and Helena has brought him back through the rift. Marion, Karen Allen's character, is brought back into the film and there's that lovely moment between the two of them, which is a callback to the scene on the boat in the first film. Yes, um, that is a perfect scene. It is. And it's, it's, it's too good for this film. Yeah. Uh, and it's a perfect way of saying goodbye to Indy. That scene is, but the the film. The, no, no, that scene, yeah. just that scene in in isolation. I think it's it's a wonderful scene. It's it is the high of the whole film. Even that for me, Steve was undercut with a bit of um. There was that that focus on the hat. Yeah, like a sort of keel focus on the hat. But you know what? I instantly sort of picked up on is the fact that John Williams's score should be more built into like a rousing crescendo towards the end, which is done in all the other films, and it didn't. The whole thing was a bit flat. Yeah, I know. I, I, I haven't got a problem with that because it is a different end. And everything else, every other film ends with, you know, this is one of the continuing adventures of Indiana Jones. And this one ends in, as a way of saying, this is the last Indiana Jones but that, it didn't adventure. Even, it didn't even feel like that for me. It still felt as if there's no obvious finality to this. And it just left me a bit flat. No, I I think that the scene was it was perfect. I really really enjoyed it. And throughout the film, there's nods to the other films, right? Hmm. And so you've got in this scene, you've got you know the the where does it hurt? It's, you know, it was best to work out where it doesn't hurt. And she points at her elbow just like she did in the first film. And I was I've been trying to uh, there's a see um, one moment earlier in the film when he says, "Oh, you didn't have to drink the the blood of Kali." And I, you you've just reminded me of um, nod to Last Crusade, and that was with the spear. When he said, "Oh, it's a fake," and then he starts looking at all the others, and as if what, what would be the cup of you yeah. know, a carpenter? Yeah, yeah. It's got all these lovely little moments, but it, but that ending, I think, it was a perfect ending. I really, really loved that ending, that last moment. It, it was just way too little, way too late. Oh but yeah, by that, yeah, by that yeah, point, yeah, We've had yeah. two and a half hours of my my emotions have not been hit by anything at all. <laughs> I think that that last scene was for me. It was so good that maybe. The, the film itself didn't deserve it or maybe that film that ending doesn't deserve the film that came before it yeah but, but i think it's a it is a wonderful moment I yeah I, I i liked karen allen's performance in that as well and because yeah. she said to you back as in like he's been absent for a long time because we're having this sort of reconciliation at the very end of the film but we've had very little else to explain you know, yeah, Matt obviously went off against his father's wishes to Vietnam and he died. And then that, you know, his, his mother never got over it and it caused the downfall of their relationship. But so much of the film's focus is on other things. It's not about the character of Indiana Jones and what no, he's been no. through. Well, the reason that scene works so well for me is uh, is because of the other films, because the history behind it rather yeah. than because of the, this particular but it, film. Again, it, it's playing on member berries and nostalgia and within the actual confines of the film itself and this story, I don't think 
it's earned and I don't think it's effective or as effective as it should be because it's a nice little bit of how the story or how much care and attention should have been given to the characters and the story at the very end and it just reminded me of the fact that we've had no care and attention to the characters in the story throughout the rest of the film. No, no, you're right there. You're right. And it does highlight that. But I think that's, as endings go, I think they couldn't have done better. You know, I I like the ending, but to me... The film didn't deserve it. No, the film didn't deserve it. It doesn't it. live up it, to it. It hadn't earned it by that point. But yeah. talking of endings, and Steve, are you ready to sort of give your final thoughts and your score out of 10 for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Okay, my final thoughts. Considering all the... It's, it's a deeply, deeply flawed film. However, I didn't have the problem with the running time in as much as I didn't look at my watch once and, and I think it went at a you know a brisk pace. I didn't dislike the film at all, despite all the, the, the problems with it. There were a few moments, uh, especially at the end, the scene when they go back in time, I thought was done very well and the very, very end was very well. And there were little moments in between like the underwater sequence and like a lot most of the opening sequence, which I think was enough to win me over to like the film, but no, nowhere near love it. I I don't get it, the heart of the film. I, I don't think there was a lot of heart in it. All right, and before you give your final score then, Steve, do you think this is a better or worse film than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? I would say it's not as good as Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because it's more ponderous. Oh. It didn't have the light touch because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, despite some the moments in it, it has a very light touch, which all the other films have. Well, ignore my gasps, Steve. My gasps of, um, oh, really, did he say that? Because I, I fully agree with you. Yeah. I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has got more peaks, but it's got deeper troughs than this film. Whereas I think this film is more just sort of meandering... I, I agree. There's not one moment in this film like the the monkey scene yeah. came from a crystal skull. There's yeah. nothing like that. No. For make me to you know that makes really makes me roll my eyes and takes yeah. me out of the film and makes me angry that they would do something like that. If it did have something like that, at least they would be trying something because you know King of the Crystal Skull tries things and fails. Yeah. Occasionally. Yeah. Whereas this one is just more of a middle of the road kind of you know we'll we won't take too many chances until the very end. Yeah. With when they do go back in time, I think that was the only chance that they really took in it. Yeah. And it paid off. Mm. But I think that throughout the film, they don't take as many chances as they should. It's middling. So in terms of the film then, Steve, what are you going to give it for a score out of 10? Oh, this is so difficult. This is. I, I want to be optimistic. I want to be positive and say a 7, but I'm not sure if it deserves that. All right, I'll give it a 6. 6 out of 10. Yes, yeah. But I, I do want to be more positive because it's still Indiana Jones. Yeah, well... <laughs> Like I said, I went into this film positively dreading it. I think I made that clear to you, didn't I? Yes, yeah, you did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this film, believe it or not, is not as bad as I thought it'd be. Oh, it, okay. It's nowhere near as bad as I thought it'd be. I thought this was going to be the new equivalent to The Last Jedi or that second Transformers film or one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films that I really didn't enjoy and nearly walked out of. I thought this was going to be a film that really, really had me grinding my teeth. And it didn't. It didn't. I went in with really low expectations. I think that helped sort of buffer me against some of the stuff that was to come. And like I say, I do think that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has got lower troughs in this film, but it's also got higher peaks. It's got scenes that I think, you know, I actually really like that. I actually think like that is a very good shot or you know the the bit with the, the car chase through 1950s wherever it was 
actually looked really well done and and in terms of the effects and the fact that it's supposed to be set in the 50s and we're seeing streets and buildings or whatever which are not 2008 i thought that was really convincing whereas this film just doesn't do that at all at any point it i just became numb by the end and certainly you know by the end of the tuck tuck chase i was just done i was like right stop with all of this generic silly physics action this poorly choreographed there's no sense of geography there's no sense of peril i'm just sick of it and it just never gripped me at any point. And like I say, I looked at my watch four or five times at least throughout this film. I didn't dislike the film as much as I thought, but this is in no way a great film that I can recommend. And it, it's sad that this is going to be the last Indiana Jones film, just in terms of the fact I don't think the last two films have done his character justice or the saga justice. You know, you've just used the word generic, right? I think that perfectly sums it up because it, to me it sounds, it seems like it was a film that somebody made, oh, Indiana Jones is really popular. Let's try and, you know, like the, what was the Richard Chamberlain one? Um, King Solomon's Mines. King Solomon's Mines, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Or perhaps, you know, in The Mummy back in the 90s, which is you know, a perfectly good film. I'm not having a go at it, but there was a lot of these films which were inspired by Indiana Jones, but weren't Indiana right. Jones. Steve, let me take you, and again, something we haven't spoke about is director James Mangold. He's he's not got a huge filmography as a director, right? But some of the films he's directed, Copland. Very, very good. Phenomenal film. I absolutely yeah. love it. Walk the Line. Very good again. The 310 to Yuma remake. Yeah, a perfectly good film. Logan. I've lost and lost in that. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm even a fan of the Wolverine, and there is a there is a longer cut of the Wolverine, which is particularly hard to get. The Fox didn't do their best efforts to release because it was only available as an extra disc on the 3D Blu-ray version, which is absurd. But even that's a film that I quite like. Ford versus Ferrari from four years ago. Oh, brilliant film. Brilliant entertainment, yeah. Mangold is a competent director, to say the least. But for me, of all the films of his I've seen, and in fact, let's not forget, Girl Interrupted from 99 isn't a bad film. I need to make identity as identity, well. Identity, another I, one. I'm a big fan of that. Right. This is, for me, by far the weakest of his films. But, as I was discussing earlier on with Bill Scurry, I think he'll bounce back from this. Yeah. I think this was a studio-mandated film. Yes, and I think it was studio-controlled as well. He didn't have the control of um, that he did for these other films. Yeah, and I just don't think this will be a huge blotch on his career. And, you know, I, I think he's going to be okay coming out of this. What I don't think is going to be okay is is the box office for this film. I was sat there, now I know you've said the same, Steve, about the lack of people in the showing. Yeah. There weren't many people in there for an opening night showing of Indiana Jones film. Yes, but I'm thinking of this. I mean, Indiana Jones, the people who go to the cinema more than anybody else, 16 to 24-year-olds, Yeah. is it something that's still relevant no, to them? Is it still it is. part of the zeitgeist? No. It has, I mean, Star Wars has got loads of programs on um, Disney Plus and it's, it's always something there to keep people interested. We haven't had anything for 15 years. The people who are going to see yeah. this film, the last time an Indiana Jones film was out, a lot of them would have been in nappies. And that's where I think, Steve, this film is yeah. going to fall down because I don't think there's anything in this film that's going to appeal to young people. No, I, and I think Disney were really, really confident based on the fact that they knew the um, franchise that you know that the people who who are fans of um, Indiana Jones hold it very very dearly yeah. but those fans are older people now yeah and they don't go to the cinema as often they a lot of them will be happy to wait for it to appear on Disney plus and the younger people don't have this connection with the character anymore Do you know, Steve, one of the things that struck me as well which is why I don't think this film's going to be anything other than a bit of a failure for 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 Disney and Lucasfilm is the fact that so many of the mainstream media 
have given this film poor reviews. Yeah, yeah, and the positivity that's around the film is more to do with the fact that it's a character we've loved for a long, yeah. long time and it's coming to an end. That's right. It's nothing to do with the film. The general positivity but the fact that it's the Indiana Jones saga being brought to an end as opposed to this is a great film, this is a great send-off for the character. We're not getting that from any of the, the, the mainstream media no. apart from a few there's a few shill reviewers there's one in particular on youtube whose review i haven't even watched but i, I viewed from good sources that this person says nothing critical about the film nothing specific and it's literally just a i'm too scared to piss off the studio that gave me uh, you know a free ticket to this film to tell the, you know, what i really think everyone else seems to have kind of gone at it quite hard it, it, it's yeah. not nice to watch it's not nice, nice to watch you know an indiana jones film fail but I genuinely think that the box office predictions that have been given for this film are going to be fairly accurate, if not a little bit well, more than what it's actually going to take. Going back to the youngsters, though, but right, I took my daughter and my son, right? Oh, yeah, my yeah. my daughter hated it. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of it, she said that was so boring. Yeah, she was confused with with it. She said that she um, started, you know, her mind started wandering a couple of times. Yet at the same time, my son, as soon as he finished, he turned to me and said, "That was amazing." So he did really, really love mm-hmm. it. So there is... Well, you know, what, what I'll say there, Steve, is, right, I've got two sons and a daughter, and uh, my daughter's by far the brightest of the three. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the same with your two. <laughs> Yian's a lovely boy. <laughs> boy, I'm siding with Gracie on this one. <laughs> you? This is not a good film. You gave it a six out of ten. I would be going against everything I've said for the last hour and 20 minutes if I gave this film anything more than... And it pains me to say this. A four out of ten. Oh. Wow, your expectations must have been really low. They were rock bottom. <laughs> rock bottom. Oh. oh, wow. I've got no desire to watch a film again. And I can't recommend it to anyone. It's not horrible. I've seen worse films. I've seen films that have literally had me grinding my teeth down to the gums. This isn't one of those films. But the more I think about it, the more I struggle to find great scenes. And even that opening, which I can't say I really enjoyed the opening... It was just the bit of the film that got me thinking, oh, I wish we'd had a film set in 1940s Germany or during World War II made back in the 90s with the Harrison Ford still young enough to give us a film that didn't have to rely on this de-aging stuff. And it just made me, it made me both think, oh, this this could be good. And also then think, oh, what could have been? Yeah, I think the problem with nostalgia, we've seen that with the last uh, um, Star Wars trilogy. Especially the Force Awakens, I thought. Yeah. It relied so much on nostalgia that all, all it does is make you wish that you were watching those films, the yeah. older films, rather than being there with the new film. I agree. You know, it, it's basically saying, compare this film with the greats. And that's not what they're trying to do, but that's what it does. Well, for, for a film, Steve, that cost $300 million to make, this film is going to have to pull in, I think... To be seen by Disney as a success, this is going to have to, put, have to pull in near enough 1.2 billion. Because they always say that you know a film needs to make three times its budget in order to be seen as a success because you've got a factor in marketing costs. Yeah. And there's loads of other hidden costs and there's loads of misreporting of budgets which are, which are mooted to be done by certainly by the major studios. So I think if this film pulls in 750 million worldwide, it's going to be lucky to do that. And I think on a budget of 300 million, I think Disney, Lucasfilm are going to be seen as a failure if it pulls in that. No, I think it's going to end up with about five hundred million. I think oh, that'll be a real kick in the guts. And let's see, let's see what the um, behind-the-scenes fallout that Disney Lucasfilm is if it does crash and burn. Yeah, and I think it'd be lucky though to get the five hundred million. So there you go, a six from you, a four from me. So that's a film eighty-nine verdict for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, a five out of ten. 
Ouch, Steve. Ouch. That's so disappointing. It is. Because even now, I still want to like it. And I will watch it again. But even now, I'm thinking to myself, it's Indiana Jones. I've got to like this film. No, you haven't. I, no, no I, don't, I don't have to, but I want to. But this is Indiana Jones with no creative input from the two guys who brought it to life, Spielberg yeah. and Lucas. Yes. And I think that oh, there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, especially Lucas, I think. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we often have a go at Lucas, since, but I think that he has some very good... He might yeah. not be able to be the best person to direct his ideas, but um, he is you know, a really good ideas man, I think. I agree, I agree. So there you have it. Uh, that's our review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. If you enjoy Film 89, then please leave us a positive review on your podcast provider of choice. And also, make sure that you're subscribing so you get episodes as soon as they drop. Please check out the website, film89.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies and the rest of the Film 89 team at Film89UK on Twitter and Facebook. Steve, where can people follow you if they want to chat about film, television, or your love of the study of historical artefacts? <laughs> on Twitter, and that's at Welsh Bluesman. So, Steve, that was episode 99. Next time we meet, it'll be the big one, episode 100. It's a bit of a coincidence there because we had a film with Centurions in it today. Yeah. And um, the next podcast will be a podcast of Centurions. Exactly. Episode 100. And those who follow us on social media will know uh, we'll be bringing you a big Q&A session answering questions from you, our listeners, as well as many of the wider Film 89 family of guest hosts, friends of the podcast. So please tune in for that one which, I don't know, maybe just over a week or so after this episode drops, uh, episode 100 will be with you. But until then, stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly, stay classy. <laughs>